Good morning, everyone. Happy Easter. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here, and I'll be giving the sermon in a moment. But right now, it's time for our storyteller, uh, who is Joseph Scheid. And I had a lot of fun thinking about what I want to say about Joseph by way of introduction. Some of you know there's lots of stories about Joseph in the church because he grew up here and wreaked havoc. <laughs> um, he's been playing pranks on me for a long time. When I came here, the very first, uh, second month I was here, he went through my phone and he stole a picture from my phone and then he blew it up and uh, had it in strategic places to, you know, make sure there's optimal um, embarrassment happening for me. It was a picture of me from over a decade ago, uh, sans shirt, and I was doing some kind of masculine pose, <laughs> and he thought that would be really fun to sh uh, make that image public. Since then, he's done a bunch of things, like uh, he's done things to my office. This week during staff meeting, there was a life-size poster of Sarah Palin looking down on me as I was having a staff meeting, and I didn't see it before the meeting started. Uh, he broke into my house while we were away, and he filled the house with dying or dead goldfish. Uh, <laughs> and uh, last week, as you know, as the start of my sermon, he pressed a button and bubbles started falling down, not from heaven, but from the rafters here, <laughs> throwing me off my game. <laughs> and uh, I'm scared to death of Joseph ever finding the AirPlay password for our screens one day when during the middle of the sermon, he would project images up there of God only knows what. <laughs> but it all comes from a place of love. So I love the guy, and you have all been warned now, so you're all fair game, and he's happy to love on you too. So Joseph, come on up and tell us a story. Let's give him a warm welcome. Yeah, don't ever give me your address, because uh, I might show up. Um, no, if you guys saw that picture of Peter, though, you'd be pretty impressed, too. I mean, he wouldn't be fitting in that jacket right now. He was so ripped. <laughs> it was a sight to behold. So I've been coming to Evergreen Covenant Church for a long time, since a lot of you guys uh, didn't have white hair yet. <laughs> but uh, that's not... <laughs> It's, uh, and because it's been my church since I was nine years old, a lot of the stories I have in my life of where God's worked have been in this community. Um, so when Peter asked me to tell a story, that's really all my stories kind of came from this community. I, I want to tell you a story, though, about kind of a sad time in our church. It was more than five years ago. We were between lead pastors here. We had some tough decisions to make about our staff here. Uh, the size of the congregation and the budget couldn't really support all the pastors we had. At the time, I was heavily involved in the youth program here at the church, and Jeff Promberg was our youth pastor. Jeff and I had very different styles and visions of the youth program, and I let him know it, and many others in the church know it. I feel like I treated Jeff very disrespectfully by talking behind his back. Even in front of him, I made comments about his performance, it came from a place of pride and arrogance rather than love. I was doing this for months before Jeff's role was eventually cut back to part-time. I felt some kind of righteousness that I was right. 
At this time, the leadership of the church came up with some rules for how we treat each other. We called it the behavioral covenant. The behavioral covenant talked about making sure we treated each other in the congregation in a way that honored God. Jeff's time at the church was coming to a close, and I felt extremely convicted, and yet I still did nothing. I felt convicted about this for several weeks. I felt the Holy Spirit working on me as I talked with my accountability group, which included Brian Krell here at the church. They listened as I relayed to them the burden that I carried as I felt I needed to apologize to Jeff for what I'd done. But still I waited. It wasn't until Sunday morning when it was announced that during communion you could receive prayer up here on the steps. And I was here with my 14-year-old cousin who looked up to me. I think it was probably one of his first times ever stepping foot inside a church. I took communion, I, I went to go sit back down, and I saw that Jeff Palmberg was actually one of the ones standing up here praying for people. I knew what I had to do, but I was thinking of all the reasons to not make it awkward, especially my 14-year-old cousin sitting there. I made quick of it, though. I went up and I asked forgiveness from Jeff, and of course he gave it. Right here on these steps, we prayed and we hugged. I went back to my seat hoping that no one saw that. But I think some of you remember this. Um, something happened as I sat down. A wave of emotion came over me. It was a release of years of guilt that I had pent up over this situation. And just then, within seconds, I felt somebody's arm around me. It was Brian. He had been walking with me through this process for some time, and he just hugged me. Knowing just what to say, I felt the words of God and all the love of God come through Brian those couple of minutes. It was a perfect picture to me of what the church is all about and why I love this church so much. Because the teachings of this community opened my eyes to my arrogance and helped allow me to let the Holy Spirit move in my heart and move in the hearts of others like Brian, to make beauty from my ashes, to reconcile and redeem what I had broken. After the service let out, I remember thinking, what was my 14-year-old cousin Patrick thinking? His 20-something-year-old cousin that he looked up to was crying and losing it in the middle of a service. I'm still not really sure what he thought of it, actually. Uh, but I do know that months later, we started talking about his own faith in Christ and the church he was going to and the youth group kids he was relating with. His faith would prove to be even more critical as his father passed away with the struggle with brain cancer only months later. I tell this story because it's the church's story. It's a story of a broken, prideful, sinful situation that God somehow turned and used to good. Jeff is now a pastor at a covenant church down in Twisp, Washington. I talked with Jeff and asked his permission to use this story. He told me that while it was a painful time for him, I see he saw how God was present in preparing him for the ministry in Twisp. And his words were, I can honestly can't imagine a place I'd rather serve than right here in Twisp. Thinking for myself, with God's grace, this church has extended me grace and allowed me to grow. And there's no place I'd rather serve than right here. This morning, our scripture reading is from the book of 1 Timothy. 
Please follow along on the, use the screens or in your own book. The reading is from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 18 in the New English Translation. Verse 12, I am grateful to the one who has strengthened me, Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he considered me faithful in putting me into ministry, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and an arrogant man. But I was treated with mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and our Lord's grace was abundant, bringing faith and love in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. But here is why I was treated with mercy, so that in me, as the worst, Christ Jesus could demonstrate his utmost patience as an, internal, as an example to those who are going to believe in him for eternal life. Now the eternal king, immortal, invisible, and the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I put this charge before you, Timothy, my child, in keeping with the prophecies once spoken about you, in order that with such encouragement you may fight the good fight. The word of the Lord. If you ever see Joseph and I hugging and praying and crying together, it's him saying sorry for all the pranks he's pulled on me. <laughs> Would you give him an applause again? Thank you, Joseph, for sharing your story. All joking aside, though, seriously, watch out. You're never safe. We are in the part two of a series we're doing in 1 Timothy called Generation to Generation from fear to faithfulness, and we're looking at the topic of leadership and how it is passed on from generation to generation. And the book of 1 Timothy is a wonderful story of how the apostle Paul, now in his senior years, knowing that he was going to die soon, uh, these rep this represents his second to last uh, piece of writing that we have from Paul. And he is very deliberately passing the baton on to Timothy, a younger, less experienced. He is naive and he is timid and fearful and anxious. He's passing the baton on to such a man. And uh, we ought to listen to him to see how the baton gets passed. The title of the sermon is called The Good Fight. And, uh, you know, as I was preparing this talk for the last several weeks, I did not expect it to take the turn that it did. Uh, today we're going to talk about something that I didn't foresee at all. Uh, we're going to end the sermon by talking about this idea of sleeping. Not metaphorically resting or something, not emotional rest, but literal bodily sleep. When your brain begins to shut down, your body gets paralyzed, and you are uh, unconscious and how that is one of the key ways that God bestows his love to us. The Bible, in fact, says God gives sleep to those he loves. And I, struggling with sleep, have always wondered, why doesn't God love me tonight? <laughs> so let me start by telling uh, you a story about my chickens. So I grew up in the city, and I never, never would have bet a dollar that I would ever have chickens one day. But here I am on Mercer Island with chickens, they're in uh, temporary housing right now. Uh, but 
We have these four chickens, and uh, they've had a rather antagonistic relationship with my dog. So now we have three chickens. <laughs> and one of the three chickens doesn't have a tail. <laughs> now, I care about these chickens a great deal. I have researched far and wide to figure out what is the best food to feed them. And uh, I order on Amazon and make sure they're fed and well-watered. But I do it because they need to pay me rent, which is eggs. And you know, once you eat these eggs, Costco eggs just don't seem as good. And uh, so I feed them for the eggs, not because I love them for their own sake. You know, I will never die for them. In fact, to the contrary, I have plans for them to die for me <laughs> when they stop paying rent. And I realize that God is not feeding me in order to feed his slaves because he wants me to work more, do more, and produce more. He's not trying to use me. He doesn't need me. That's not why he created me. And I tell you this story because as I started thinking about Easter, this idea of hope and renewal and new energy, God's not trying to energize me or to inspire me so that he can extract more from me. But that is what I felt. My human nature, being a product of our busy culture, my first impulse was, oh, God wants to inspire me. He wants to inject energy into me so that I can do more for him so that I can be more productive and more useful, just more. He wants more from me, and he's feeding me for that purpose. And that didn't sit well with me. That's not the God I know, even though that was my reaction. So I started thinking some more, started uh, sort of digging deeper down the layers of the truth there, and I realized that he's not loving me the way a master loves a slave, the way I love my chickens but he died for me. He cares about me, and he's inviting me to be one that is already loved. And I've been thinking about our society and its culture, and there's a call on so-called Christians, us, you and I, if we are Christians, to be salt and light in our culture, in our society. And I think the counter culture and the counter message, the light that we bring to the darkness is a kind of rest that can only be experienced by those who are already loved. And so if you and I claim to be the objects of God's love, we claim that to be the gospel of Christ and yet we are running the same race at the same pace in the same harried and frenzied way, are we shining any light? If we play the same game, if we play by the cultural rules, how do we leave a mark? How are we salt in that kind of culture? And so, though I did not expect to be talking about sleep on Easter Sunday, uh, here we are. Paul, in this story, he is tagging uh, Timothy, and he's saying, Timothy, I want you to fight the good fight. And so the question I want to ask and address today is, how is this a good fight? 
And how are we to fight it? How can we fight the fight the way God intended? Paul is giving Timothy a framework for this fight. And I think that's the same fight for us so that we would fight and not give up or grow weary. So the good fight. Ready? So we have here verse 12. It opens with this idea of Paul acknowledging that God is the source of his strength, implying that he experiences weakness and emptiness, a kind of fatigue. And then jump down to verse 18, we have this idea of encouragement as being crucial to keep fighting the good fight. So these are the bookends of this section of Paul's letter to Timothy. And then in between, notice what we have. We have Paul first acknowledging a kind of personal and universal condition of human brokenness. He says that he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an arrogant man. And what eventually was able to reach out and save him was mercy, grace, and patience. He's describing in between the bookends of strength and encouragement where strength and encouragement comes from. It comes not from Paul's works, but from the rest he experiences as he knows God to be merciful and gracious and patient. You know, you think about the idea of sin. What is sin? Sin is a form of works. You don't sin because you want to wreck your life. You sin because those are false solutions to problems you have. Those are illegitimate ways of meeting legitimate needs. Reliance on sin is the same as relying on our works. Both blatant sin and works that don't work all get in the way of us experiencing a kind of passivity that allows us to experience the love of God in Christ. What is the difference between you trying to earn somebody's affection versus you responding to love that's already yours? What's the psyche, though? What's the mentality shift if you are already loved? I was thinking about this week because I was rereading the story of the experiment during the 70s about the rhesus monkeys and how they so badly wanted to be loved by their moms and the way they would, they would behave, they would start flirting with the towel, you know, hoping to be re- loved in return by these towels that represented uh, mothers in their little monkey lives. And just how they want to manipulate and they do all they can to try to get love which wasn't coming to them. And then it got me thinking about my kids and how they are so free to be themselves and they run to me and embrace me and I love that. You see me often in the back just being, uh, just, you know, uh, just I'm the finish line to the little race my girls run from where they were sitting to where I'm standing and they come and they embrace me and they, they hang on every limb that I have. I just feel so good when they're doing that. And that's them responding to already being loved. But what if they weren't already loved? You know, and this is the difference between light and darkness. 
And this is the invitation that I think the word has for us today, this Easter Sunday. Invitation for you to understand that you don't have to live the way you live. You can live a different way. Um, you know, I've been thinking about our church uh, quite a bit. I think about our church every day. And more recently, I've been really working hard to try to crack the code that's prevalent in our culture. You know, it's not just our church or churches, but it's every organization. Our society in general, we're all trying to figure out how to live in this new reality in the ways that we relate to each other. Our church, we have been calling it the opt-in culture. You know, we're understanding that people don't think of uh, place the way people used to think of place. And so they don't come to church. They don't go to the store. You've been reading about the uh, slow but steady decline of the retail industry, haven't you? How many of you are in the retail industry? You see this. You've experienced this. You know, even in other companies, people just don't want to physically go out of their way to be together like they used to. And of course, it's going to impact stores. It's going to impact churches. You know, and we're less commitment-oriented. We're more convenience-oriented. We're choosing to opt in and opt out. And so uh, I've been asking the question with the leadership team and with the staff, we definitely see this reality playing out in the church context. And it's everywhere. I literally read about it every day. Some pastor out there writes one article or another blog entry about this every single day. You read about it in different ways, the way it's affecting uh, almost every sector. What's happening in our society today? I think we really are lacking a kind of margin and blank and white space in our lives. Every moment of our lives are flooded with stimuli, with distraction, with something to respond to. Don't you sometimes feel weird if your phone doesn't ping you for like five minutes and you wonder if the world is dead? You know, re you reach for your device just to make sure. You scroll through an empty uh, set of notifications. You wonder, huh, what's today, a holiday? No, it's two in the morning, fool. Go to bed. <laughs> this is me talking to myself. There's a constant pressure to stay connected and yet feel so disconnected and feel so alone. You know, and I think the initial thought was, all right, I'm the pastor of this church. I get everybody to come to everything and do more and we got to extract more from them and we got to get them involved and connected and participating. And then I started to get honest about it. And I realized, you know what? I don't even want that for myself. And I'm paid to participate in the life of the church. I literally am paid to be your friends, people. <laughs> and yet it's tiring. I feel a kind of fatigue that's settled in our society and our souls. And you feel it too, I think. You know, what you don't want is have to do more, to commit to more, to respond to more. If I'm not busy with trying to understand what Snapchat is so I can stay current with my kids, Instagram and Facebook and tweeting and news feeds and text messages and emails and Amber Alerts, every time I have some opportunity 
to do nothing and be bored and let the game come to me. I'm invited to be anxious and reactive. And there's the fear of missing out. And yet, I don't feel connected. I'm more tired. And this was the place I'm coming from as I think about how to respond and adapt to this new cultural reality. And I realized we have some deeper thinking to do about what is at the heart of how to respond to what we've been calling the opt-in culture. I know this. It's not an ask for more. But it is an invitation to be salt and light, to live a different way. And not all of us are there yet where we have hit rock bottom with the way our society is going. But it is a kind of darkness that we are called to be lights in. There is a way that you have to be out there as one who is already loved. You have to be out there fully aware and disclosing and working through your own brokenness the way Paul was labeling himself. There is a place for God's grace and God's mercy and God's patience in all of our lives. And we are called to embody that, to live in that. And that's the invitation of Easter, that the work of God is already finished. It's been declared finished by Christ. God is not inviting us to do more for him. He's not. That's our own anxiety. That's our fear. That's shifting us into that unsustainable gear. What I want for my own self, my life, my soul, my kids, my family, my church is the framework that Paul was passing on to Timothy. You will be strengthened. You will be encouraged. But God is not opposed. God is not opposed to inspiration, but his primary business is not inspiration. It's salvation. And he's saying the encouragement and the strength that I'm giving you, it's not so that I can extract more out of you. It's so that you can more thoroughly enter into my rest, so that you can be born, not of this world, but of love, born from above. I know we can live busy lives, but we're not meant to try to earn identity or to earn love or to earn validation. And it's not going to come from the person you're trying to please. You know, you ever feel anxiety when you don't send a message right back? You ever find yourself counting the minutes after you received a text? And then you viewed it already, so it's not marked new anymore. And then it might get pushed down, and you may never respond. And the other person might misinterpret what you didn't say. Just me? There is a kind of grace and mercy and patience about God that we are invited to participate in. It's a way of life. And this, my friends, is the fight. It's the fight against our propensity towards works. Propensity to live in the frenzy that's all around us. And we 
are called to light the fire line and say, no, that trend, that gear, it ends, it shifts with me. I am already loved of God. He has died for me. I'm not called to die for him and complete his work. I die to myself so that he might live through me. It's not even my life to live, but this life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So this is my own meditation. How do you feel about you? How is your life going? Are you tired? Is there a rest that you long for? What's keeping you churning? What makes you not only open up your devices with a kind of impatience, but also a kind of panic? What are your concerns? The message of Easter is that our final enemy, death, has been defeated. Sin has been triumphed over, and there is a kind of light that can grow in and through you. And this message, this gospel message, is that you are deeply loved. You are cared for. God will never leave you or forsake you. No matter what happens in your life, you will be okay. And everything is okay. God is on the throne. He is in control. And the weight you feel is not weight God's putting on your shoulders. Jesus said his yoke is easy and his burden is light. From where does your help come? There's permission granted to us to admit and confront our own brokenness so that through it we might experience God's patience and kindness and mercy and grace. And from that place of being Loved, we live and move and have our being. So I want to move on to the application, but it's kind of a different application because um, I want to dig into it a little bit deeper. I want to provide you with some depth, and I want to add some credibility to this application. And the credibility uh, really comes from a body of theology on sleep that I didn't know existed, do you know there's a whole world of theology in the Bible about sleep? It's fascinating. I had no idea. I thought it was just like some practical interpretation of like actual theological verses in the Bible. But no, the Bible is just filled with literal verses about how God wants us to sleep. So I want to share some of that with you. I received a lot of help from Benjamin Self. What a last name that guy has, Benjamin. Uh, but he wrote this beautiful, well-resourced meditation on Martin Luther King Jr. and the monumental grace of sleep. And he argues, and maybe it's scientific, that a third of the grace we need and experience in our life comes from sleep. Because a third of the time we're actually sleeping. It's a huge chunk of our life, and it's God's invitation for us to be passive and to receive. 
and to partake and digest and ingest. And from that place of being full of the rest and love of God, we arise. And from that secure place, we take on the day. And outwardly, our actions could look similar, but inwardly, it's a completely different game altogether for us. So um, Benjamin, Mr. Self here, he um, begins his essay writing about the story of Rip Van Winkle. He loves this story because Martin Luther King Jr. loved this story and used uh, his story many, many times in many of his speeches. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. gave literally thousands of speeches. Most of us have only heard one of them. Uh, but even that one speech we heard, he gave many times all over the country. Did you know that? If you Google it, there's different versions of it out there. And you realize sermons do get better when they're repeated. You know? His timing was off, like in Philadelphia when he gave that speech. There was like not one applause. You know, it's kind of fascinating. Uh, but uh, Mr. Rip here in the story uh, he, he disappeared for 20 years. He climbed the mountain in the Catskills. And uh, on his way up, he walked by an inn. And there was a picture frame, a sign. And the sign had a picture of King George III. Right? And then 20 years, he was in isolation by himself in the Catskills. And, uh, and Rip comes back down the same mountain and walks by the same inn. And he sees the same sign. But the picture has changed, and instead of King George III, it's now a picture of George Washington. And Martin Luther King Jr. bemoans this story, and uh, he says, not only has Rip slept for 20 years, but he slept 20 years through a revolution, the revolution, not like a metaphorical revolution, like the digital revolution or something. The country literally changed. And he slept through it. And he says things like this. All too many people fail to remain awake through great periods of social change. But today, our very survival depends on our ability to stay awake, to adjust to new ideas, to remain vigilant, and to face the challenge of change. Together, we must learn to live as brothers, or together, we will be forced to perish as fools. So Martin Luther King Jr., he tapped into our FOMO. And some of you know what FOMO is. It's short for the fear of missing out. And he goes on to say, MLK says, human progress never rolls in on wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts of men willing to be co-workers with God. You know, and there's a sort of this pressure to participate, to work all the harder. And you think that's all the truth we need. But that's only a partial truth. And Benjamin, he goes on in his reflection to talk about the fatigue that Martin Luther King Jr. felt as he approached the end of his time in the movement that he was leading. In fact, uh, when Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, died, they did an autopsy, and it showed that he had the heart of a 60-year-old, even though he was only 39 years old. And he goes on to say that in the tough years preceding his death, King was, quote-unquote, constantly fantasizing about getting out of the movement. In just over a decade, this modern-day apostle traveled over 6 million miles. 
Now think about that. We celebrate when a person hits a million miles of airline travel in the course of a lifetime. Airlines celebrate this. The captain himself will come out and decorate the, you know, the passenger with a pin and that sort of thing. MLK, six million miles over in 10 years, and he gave more than 2,500 speeches. Right? Think about that. I give maybe 50 talks a year. You know? And uh, he wrote five books in his spare time. He didn't have a ghostwriter. He actually wrote the books. So he lived a long, full, and busy life. But in his heart, he longed for escape from the work. He longed for an end. And he came to a place where he was worried more about his soul than about the movement he had loved so much. And he says, I have craved and loved this little death of sleep, a more thorough disengagement, which falls nightly over my worried mind like dew from heaven. Those are MLK's words. God has built into our human existence passivity. And he says, you will be awake for two-thirds of the day within which you work, within which you move and live and exercise your being. But the reason you do that and the way you move about your day is as one who is supposed to be asleep. And sleep is not just your body's literal rest and becoming unconscious, but it's a kind of symbol, it's emblem of you receiving, you being vulnerable, but not feeling vulnerable because you are securely loved and cared for. You are seen to the very bottom and you are loved just as you are. There is not one thing you can do to cause the God of the universe to see you more or to acknowledge you more or to love you more. He cannot love you less. He is the very definition of love and the very fact of your existence is the living proof of God's love for you because you are born from love, the scriptures teach. You are born from above. And even a nursing mom's love pales in comparison, scripture says, that though she may forget a child nursing at her bosom, God will never, ever, ever stop loving you. He cannot forget you. And he will not use us. He's not trying to extract anything from us. There's no kind of manipulation that he's vulnerable to. There's no amount of flirtation, no rebellion that we can do to cause God to do anything that is outside of his disposition towards us, which is only love. And so when Martin Luther King Jr. says he craves sleep, this little death, he is tapping into his divine intention, God's divine intention for him to be asleep. I want to read you a section of what the author says. He says, sleep seems so passive. 
And when it's over, I've got no good stories or pictures to share, no sound bites of inspiration to take with me to work the next day. But if I had to look back on the past decade of my life, humbling as it has been, and pinpoint the one thing on a day-to-day basis that has helped hold my body and soul together more than anything else, it would probably be sleep. Sleep is, after all, how we spend about a third of our lives, and it's the one way I'm able to consistently recover from the emotional pain of the day that doesn't require energy and is not self-destructive. At a time in my life like this one, when the waves of emotional distress just keep coming, I suppose it makes sense that I crave sleep that I'd become more acquainted with its soothing, healing power. I'm weak, I'm a bruised reed, a smoldering wick. I am no Martin Luther King. Heck, Martin Luther King was no Martin Luther King. As Richard Rohr says, I need something every day that can transform my pain so I won't transfer it onto myself or others. You know, nobody really understands what happens when we sleep. Scientists have some theories. You know, we know that there's a kind of plaque removal that happens in our brain. You know, we know that uh, there's a kind of worst-case scenario that we practice in our nightmares. You know, they've done tests to, you know, like uh, not rat- let rats enter into REM sleep, and then they don't know how to complete the maze, or they don't run away from cats. But then if they sleep, they'll run away from cats. It's kind of a fascinating thing. Um, and uh, we know that we kind of emotion, do emotional editing. We are just flooded with data all day coming at us, and our brain just pairs away and forces the mind to forget. It's a kind of strategic editing that happens. We don't really know. Doctors really don't know what happens. We do know that if we don't sleep, we go insane. We lose our humanity. And the simple application for this sermon is simply to ask you to prioritize your sleep. It is okay to stop the show, to stop the responding, to shut down the stimuli and go to bed. Frederick Buechner, Alphabet of Grace, one of my favorite authors, says this, Life is grace. Sleep is forgiveness. The night absolves. Darkness wipes the slate clean. Not spotless to be sure, but clean enough for another day's chalking. Sleep is that one time during the day when I relinquish this beloved delusion of control and just float like driftwood. And in that sense, falling asleep is ultimately an act of trust. I cannot fix this world. I cannot fix my students. I cannot even fix myself. And I also cannot accept things the way they are. But at least in sleep, I am able to rest while in the grace of the world. I don't have to move a muscle. I can just lay there. Aeschylus. He says this, even in our sleep... Pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until in our own despair against our will comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. Church, we have permission to rest. 
It's a mandate to rest. For you to say yes to Christ is to say yes to a different way of living. Yes, we live in a society and a culture that inundates us with the invitation to work, including sin, which is a kind of work. And to believe the gospel, it is to believe that God calls us to rest and to enter into his rest. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 reminds even the most ardent of kingdom workers that it is God who causes the growth. Jesus himself in Matthew 4 says, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. We don't know how the world turns. We don't make it turn. All we're doing is scattering seed. We don't know what we're doing. We're not even planting. We're scattering. And then somehow we wake up and look. A plant has grown. Much work is done while we sleep. Rest is its own revolution, a vital space where God has God's merciful way with our tired and troubled souls, where we let ourselves die that we might live. That, for me, is where real hope lies. Here's our final quote for the day. Megan O'Rourke, her little poem to her grandfather. Before he died, blind and emaciated, my grandfather, who loved the opera, told me sometimes among the tall trees he walked, and listen to the sound of a river entering the sea by letting itself be swallowed. So this is my prayer for all of us, that somehow we would believe the gospel, believe the message of the cross, and enter into the life of the resurrection by allowing ourselves to be swallowed up in God's love. Who would you be if you were loved to the bottom? If there was no more contribution you could possibly make, who would you be? If you had fears cast out and anxiety subsided, who would you be? How would you move about your life? We conclude with Lamentations 3. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new Every morning, great is your faithfulness. Somehow, if you arise in the morning, the day is new and the mercies of God are new. Would you live that way? Would you live as one whose Savior has finished the work, whose Savior has risen from the grave and learn to live as one who is resting? Would you bow your heads with me? God, we thank you that your strength and encouragement to us does not result in more work for us, but rest and sleep as experienced only by those who are deeply and finally loved. I pray that for me, I pray that for our church, that somehow we would experience rest so that we can be salt and light in our culture in our society in our world i pray this in jesus name on this easter sunday amen